everyone. All right, let's, uh, let's pray as we get started this morning. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for uh, the sacraments, and we thank you for the opportunity we have and the good health that we have to come together today and to study your word together and to study what um, your people have said about your word throughout the ages. And uh, Lord, we pray that you give us clarity of thought this morning and you, that you'd help us to remember and that you would help us to um, think clearly as we wrestle, wrestle with some of these um, very difficult issues. I uh, pray that you would bless our time together this morning. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we are this morning continuing our series on the sacraments. Um, today, we're going to be talking about a Roman Catholic baptism, their understanding of baptism as that developed in the Middle Ages. And then we'll be talking about the Lutheran tradition's understanding of baptism. And the reason we are sort of doing this, why we're taking the time to study like the different views of baptism throughout history is because we want to understand, right, what God's people have said throughout history. We want to know um, how the Spirit has been working, how it's been, uh, how He has been revealing um, truth to people, and how um, Christians have just wrestled with these issues. Because I think it will help us to think more clearly about the Reformed understanding of baptism when we look at that next week, and then as we continue to look at Scripture and uh, theology later in this series. So, if you'll remember, last week we were dealing with uh, the early church's understanding of baptism. And I just want to review a couple of those points before we uh, get going with the Roman Catholic view because they're going to be important for understanding that view. So, firstly, you remember last week as we were talking about the early church's understanding of baptism, that for the early church, the mode of baptism wasn't important to them. And do you remember what, what was the mode of baptism? What did we mean by that? Yeah, right, exactly. It's like when you administer baptism, do you use immersion, right? Do you completely submerge someone in the water? Do you pour the water on their head? Do you sprinkle water on their head? That sort of thing, right? Um, The mode of baptism wasn't important for early Christians. They didn't care about that. Just as long as there was water being used, that's what was important. And we saw that infant baptism was being practiced very early. Um, The earliest record that we have of it officially is about uh, 140 years or so after Jesus was on earth. And uh, that's just the earliest we know for sure. We don't know what was happening for sure before that. Um, But because it was happening so early, we can probably assume it was also happening uh, earlier than that. Um, And then we also saw then, and this is really most important in the early church, is understanding of baptism. And that is that in the early church... There was not a great deal of clarity on what exactly baptism does. Right? They all understood that baptism is some kind of a sign. They understood that baptism has, has some kind of spiritual significance. Right? It's not just a sign. It does something more than that. But there wasn't a lot of clarity on exactly what it does do. Now, some of the early Christians believed in what we talked about last week as being regenerative baptism. Where baptism actually affects salvation. Um, Some people in the early church believed in baptism more like our modern Baptists, believing it was just a sign. It doesn't have spiritual significance. So you've got, you know, the two sort of extremes uh, going on there and then a lot of things in between. But there just wasn't much clarity. And there wasn't a lot of clarity really even up until the early Middle Ages. And now we're moving more into uh, the Roman Catholic view as that developed. And that view has its roots, its very beginnings, 
in a very, very important theologian, and that is Augustine. You guys have heard of Augustine before, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah, if you, if you spend any time reading about Christianity, you're going to hear about Augustine, because right? Augustine is so important. Now, Augustine did a lot of good things, taught a lot of really good theology, a lot of really important stuff for, say, like the doctrine of election and uh, the doctrine of justification and those sorts of things. He wasn't quite as articulate on those issues as a lot of later theologians were, but he had a lot of good things to say. So when you think Augustine, you should think very positive overall, very important and good theologian. Um, And Augustine, when he dealt with the issue of baptism, he says that infant baptism has been, quote, unquestionably handed down by the Lord and his apostles and has been received by the authority of the universal church. That's a pretty strong claim, isn't it? <laughs> he's Augustine, he's, like, he's saying infant baptism has been practiced since the very beginning. It's handed down by the apostles. He had a very strong view of that. And when Augustine was making the transition from talking about who should be baptized to what exactly baptism does. Because you remember, that's, that's very foggy in the early church. They don't know exactly what it does, or at least they didn't articulate it very clearly. Augustine says this. He says, the sacrament of baptism is one thing, and the conversion of the heart is another. So you see, he's distinguishing between the sign, namely baptism, and then he is distinguishing that from the actual thing that the sacrament signifies, which is conversion. So he's saying you have baptism on the one hand and you have conversion on the other. Those need to be distinguished. But then here's what else he says, and I'm going to ask you a question about this. He says, the sacrament of baptism is one thing and the conversion of the heart is another. But then right after that he says, but that man's salvation is made complete through the two together. So he distinguishes conversion and baptism as two different things. And then he says salvation is made one when they are together. What do you think is sort of the implication of what Augustine is saying there? Just just throw something out there. Just think about that. Baptism is necessary. Necessary for? For salvation. Yeah. Baptism is necessary for salvation. So I'm not sure that Augustine actually meant that himself. But what later thinkers did, particularly the Roman Catholic Church, is they come to Augustine's teaching and they say, ah, see, yes, we distinguish between conversion and baptism. But in order to be saved, you really need both of them together. If you want to be justified, if you want to be right with God, you have to sort of take faith and baptism and put them together, and then you're saved. Now, again, I'm not sure Augustine was really, really trying to say that in itself, but that's what later Roman Catholic theologians did. And that's what brings us now to what we're going to talk about this morning, uh, firstly, which is the, the Roman Catholic view of baptism. And we kind of uh, sort of, you know, barely scratched the surface of this last week because Grant had brought up a good point and a question. And, uh, but we're going to look at it a little more carefully now. Baptism for the Roman Catholic Church, all right, both in history at the time of the Reformation and today, is one of their seven sacraments. Now, did you know Roman Catholics have seven sacraments, not two? 
Yeah, some of you do. I can see this. And maybe some of you, that's news. Uh, but the Roman Catholics have a lot of sacraments. They've got seven. It's a lot more than we have because we have two. And just by way of clarity, does anyone know like what sacraments they have besides the Lord's Supper and baptism? Can you throw something out there? Okay, marriage. Yep, that's a sacrament for Rome. What else? Last rites. Yep, that's right. The anointing of the dead, or at least not really the dead, but the anointing of the almost dead on their deathbed. Yep, to give them that last bit of grace before they enter eternity. So what else is there? We've got four so far. Penance, number five. Penance is probably the most important for them uh, because penance is what you do when you are going and confessing your sin to the priest. Uh, you, you come, you confess your sin. The priest gives you uh, a list of things that you need to do, the, your works of satisfaction, so that you can receive forgiveness, and then he, he absolves you of your sins. So that's penance. That's basically confession. All right, so we got five. There's two more. What's that? Lent? No, that's not one of them. That's important to them, but it's not a sacrament. Good guess, though. They also have um, ordination. Ordination is a sacrament. The ordination of uh, priests to the ministry. That's kind of like um, the priests have the ordination sacrament, and then you know the lay people have marriage as a sacrament. You kind of have like a sacrament for each class of people, the priests and the lay people. And then the final sacrament that they have is um, confirmation. And that's, um, you know, we're, uh, not really young children, but sort of like junior high age children, that kind of thing. They go through a steady uh, period of teaching where they learn the things of the faith and they're confirmed in their faith and that sort of thing. So, and uh, that's carried on in a lot of other churches too, uh, not as a sacrament, but like say in um, a lot of Lutheran churches, they also continue to practice confirmation. But it's not a sacrament or anything. It's just sort of like, examining children and, and uh, making sure that they understand the things of the faith and understand the Bible and that sort of thing. So anyway, so in, in Roman Catholic theology, right, we've got seven sacraments, and baptism is one of them. Now, here's the thing. For Roman Catholics, baptism is the first sacrament that you partake of in your life, at least ideally, because baptism is sort of your initiation into being a justified person. So in, in a standard Roman Catholic family, a child is born. The first thing that child needs to do to become part of the church is they need to come and be baptized. All right? And uh, that's, of course, that's very similar to us as uh, infant Baptists, as Presbyterians. Right? We want our children to come and partake of baptism right away, to, to be baptized into the church and become part of our visible church. Um, and we'll talk about that more next week. But... For Roman Catholics, baptism is more than a sign, and it is more than a seal. Baptism for Roman Catholics is something that actually justifies. Baptism, when the child is brought forward for baptism in a Roman Catholic church, they believe that baptism itself is infusing the grace of God into the child and is removing the guilt of original sin from that child. So if you want to think about it this way, baptism purifies the child. It makes them clean. They are then able to be justified before God because they are literally full of grace and their sin has been removed from them. So you can see, this is a very strong view of baptism, isn't it? Very strong view. Um, baptism itself 
is actually accomplishing the saving. And it does that because God pours in his grace and removes the sin from the child. And particularly what they have in view is it removes the guilt of sin. Because they believe children are born in sin and so on. But what needs to happen is they need to have their sin removed from them. And so at that point then, the child becomes righteous. The child is justified before God. He's saved. And he's on his way to heaven. Unless he sins. Unless he commits some kind of serious sin. And if the child then, after becoming righteous, commits a sin, then he loses his righteousness and he's no longer justified. So he can lose his justification if he sins at some point in his life, whether as a young kid or as an adult or whatever. And when the child inevitably right, sins and loses his justification, then he has to make use of the other six sacraments that the Roman Catholics offer, penance, marriage, confirmation, all of these different sacraments that occur throughout the life of that sinner so that he can be re-justified over and over and over again as he continues to fall away over and over and over again because he sins. So in Roman Catholic theology, you're constantly in this position where you are saved and then you're not saved and you're saved and then you're not saved justified and you're not justified over and over and over again and all you can really do is hope that you get all of your sins covered before you die and that's why that uh, sacrament that I believe Robert brought up um, last rites is so important to them because that last rite sacrament that anointing of the all of the people who are dying right before they die is to quickly cleanse them from sin, get everything taken care of before they pass so they can make sure that they're justified and can get to heaven and not have to go to purgatory. Okay? Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about uh, Roman Catholicism. I think it's a really interesting subject to, to deal with. But you see then, baptism for Rome plays a very important role. It's your initial justification. It's how you become saved. And uh, you could see how that comes a little bit from Augustine because Augustine, at least, at least a misunderstanding of Augustine because Augustine said, if you want to be saved, right, you've got to have conversion and you've got to have baptism. The two of them come together for salvation. And Rome says, perfect. A child can't really believe yet. I mean, maybe they do. Maybe they get their faith from their, their believing parents or something. But really, we need baptism because that can bring them into the faith and then they can continue with faith and works throughout the rest of their life to make sure that they're saved. Okay, Does that make sense? Are you kind of understanding how all of this plays together? Good. So in the Roman Catholic doctrine, baptism is very important. It's your first step in salvation, but certainly not the last step. All right, so that is uh, Rome's view. And that's been defended not only at the time of the Reformation, uh, but this continues to today. They believe the same stuff. They have confessions. They've got councils and decrees and, and encyclicals from the Pope, special declarations from him. This doctrine continues. So this is the doctrine of baptism that the Reformers had to deal with in the Reformation. This very, very strong view of, of the sacrament just working automatically. It just automatically does what it's supposed to do, and every child is brought forth. And um, now it kind of brings us to the Reformation, and it brings us to uh, really a time of 
theological unrest at the Reformation, right? Because Luther shows up on the scene. He's critiquing Roman Catholicism on justification, saying, no, we're not justified by faith and works. We're justified by faith alone. And Luther, of course, was not the only reformer. He's not the only one who had an opinion about baptism, right? We have the Reformed beginning to develop. We've got the Anabaptists beginning to develop. We've got um, the Baptist view, which comes from um, English Puritans, which we'll come and talk about that next week when we look at the Reformed view and the Baptist view of baptism next week. Um, But firstly, we want to look at the Lutheran view today. So basically what I'm saying is that we've got all of these different views about baptism sort of like spreading out at the time of the Reformation. And uh, we're going to try to look at them one by one because these views continue to today. And we want to sort of just understand how God's people are dealing with with this issue. So firstly, Lutheran baptism. And that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about today. Lutheran baptism, you want to understand this first of all when we're dealing with this, okay? When you think about Lutherans, do not think basically Roman Catholic, okay? Get that out of your head. Lutherans and Roman Catholics are very, very, very different. If you want to sort of like think about a comparison to sort of understand Lutheran thought, think Lutheran and Reformed are like that, right? Lutheran and Reformed are very close together. So as Presbyterians, we are very close with our Lutheran brothers and sisters theologically. Of course, there are important differences, and we'll talk about that in this series with respect to the sacraments. But when you think Lutheran, do not think Roman Catholic. All right? They're very, very different. They're much more like us than they're like Roman Catholics. All right? And Luther, of course, uh, would be very offended at the typical stigma about Lutherans that's down here in the South. When we, when we talk about Lutherans, we oftentimes say, at least I've heard people say, oh, yeah, they're basically Roman Catholic. No, it's not the truth. Luther would be very upset if we said something like that. So first thing we want to understand, Lutherans are very much like Presbyterians. They're like Reformed. Important differences, but very close on a lot of things. And um, the Lutheran view, of course, comes from Martin Luther, whom we all love, right? We love this guy. We love him in so many ways. Um, I'm an avid student of Luther and reader of Luther. And the Lutheran view um, comes from Luther, but it's also been, um, the, the, the Lutheran view today has been sort of modified too. It's not entirely what Luther taught. If you read Luther on baptism, and then you read a, a modern Lutheran on baptism, they're going to be uh, somewhat different on certain points. Um, generally, they're very similar, but somewhat different. And so we'll talk about both of those here. But the difficulty with understanding the Lutheran doctrine of baptism, as we sort of get into it here, is that Luther is oftentimes what people call an occasional theologian. An occasional theologian. And what I mean by that is not that Luther did theology occasionally, as if he was doing other things at other times. He's just like, you know, doing theology on Mondays and then the rest of the six days he's not doing theology. He wasn't doing it occasionally. (laughs) Luther being an occasional theologian means that Luther didn't write any systematic theology. He didn't write any, like, you know, overarching system for understanding the Bible. Instead, he was just confronted in his life with specific instances of heresy or specific things that he didn't like were being taught, and then he wrote against those particular views. So if Luther were alive today, we'd never see Luther's systematic theology being published by 
Crossway or Concordia or something. We would only see, um, you know, the biblical view of homosexuality. Because Luther would be on the controversial issue and he'd be writing on that issue. Or then we'd see Luther's view on, you know, a book would come out from Crossway and it would be Luther's view on um, women in the church or something like that, right? Controversial issues. He's going to be dealing with that kind of stuff. He's dealing with things on occasion. The occasion of the day, the main issue of the day, that's what he's writing on. And the reason why this is uh, somewhat problematic sometimes when you're studying Luther, and it's important to know this when you study Luther, is that he's got, um, he doesn't have the best systematic mind. And because he's always writing against someone or against a particular view in a specific situation, he always uses really strong language to get his point across, which sometimes results in him contradicting himself seemingly from one passage to the next. So if you read one of his works on, you know, say, for example, we're talking about baptism right now. If you read one of his works on baptism, you know, in, in 1520, and then you read another one in 1560. No, wait, he, wasn't, he died in 1546. Uh, he, 1540. Um, then uh, he might say some things that sound contradictory. He might say the opposite of what he said earlier. And sometimes that's because he changed his views, which he did do on occasion. And sometimes it's because he was just using really strong language to counteract somebody else that he wasn't trying to counteract in his earlier writing. Okay? So Luther's very difficult for that reason. And uh, it's important to point that out because there's a lot of debate about today about what Luther actually believed about a lot of things. So that is a, um, just sort of a warning as we get into this here to talk about it. Um, but anyway, Luther's hard to systematize. He's hard to, to put everything together, but we're still going to try. Because we want to understand what this great guy had to say about baptism. It's going to be helpful to us when we get into the scriptures. We're going to be referring back to Luther on a number of points. Um, so here's Luther's understanding of baptism with that very sort of long introduction. <laughs> Luther says that sacraments, so we're not talking about just baptism, but we're talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper together right now, the sacraments in general. Luther said that sacraments are promises which have signs attached to them. So sacraments are promises which have signs attached to them. And so for this reason, Luther said that sacraments are a visible word of God. And what he meant by that is this. You know, when we have the Bible, here's my Bible right here. We have the Bible, and we refer to this as the written word of God, right? This is God's word to the prophets and the apostles written down for us. This is the only word that we have that's written. And for Luther, he said, yes, we have the written word of God, but then we also have the visible word. And the visible word is the sacraments. Because what the sacraments do is they visually represent for us. They visually retell the gospel truths. Right? When we see baptism administered, we see a sinner having water poured over them. And we see, oh, look at that picture of the waters of the grace of God washing away the sin. Not, of course, literally but it's a visual representation of the gospel. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, 
We have all of us coming together and partaking of the bread and the wine. We're feeding on Christ. We see that very, very um, carefully and very intensely pictured for us. And we do it frequently. We do it um, continually because we want to continue to partake of Christ. Right? We only administer baptism once because we're only actually forgiven once. But communion we partake of continually because it shows us how we are continually feeding on Christ throughout our lives as believers. So that's what Luther meant when he said the sacraments are a visible word. And by the way, this is not foreign. If you've never heard of this before, this isn't sort of something weird. This is something we also have in the Reformed tradition. We recognize the sacraments as a visible word of God as well. So this is part of our tradition too. And it comes from from Luther and also from earlier theologians because Luther didn't just make this up. All right, so the sacraments are a visible word of God. And because the sacraments are a visible word of God, you can't ever separate the sacraments from the word of God. Anytime the sacraments are administered, you have to preach the word of God with it, or you have to at least explain the gospel. Because if, if someone just, you know, some visitor was in church, right? they, they'd never, they didn't understand what baptism was or something, and they sit down and they're watching you pour water over the head of someone or, or sprinkling water on the head of a baby or something, and they're looking at that, unless the gospel is preached, they're not going to understand the sign. They'll have no idea what's going on. So you have to have the word preached along with it if the sacrament's going to do anything for the people that are uh, watching. You have to have the word present. All right, so that's what a sacrament is. It's a visible word of God uh, in contrast to the written word of God. But the written word of God needs to be present. It needs to be proclaimed in order for the sacraments to work. Now here's what, uh, what Luther says about what baptism actually does. All right? Here's what baptism is. Here's what it does for us. And what I have for you here is I just want to read for you just a, a sentence from Luther's small catechism. And I've got this nice copy here. And uh, Luther has a section in this catechism on baptism. And here's what he says. Here's what baptism does. This is coming from part four, uh, question two. He says, what gifts or benefits does baptism bestow? And here's what Luther says. Baptism works... Forgiveness of sins delivers from death and the devil and gives everlasting salvation to all who believe as the word and promise of God declare. All right, so you notice a few things about what Luther says there. He says, baptism works the forgiveness of sins and gives everlasting salvation. So you notice this sounds a lot like Augustine, doesn't it? This this can, if you're not nuanced and you're not um, reading Luther broadly, you can begin to think this sounds a little bit like Roman Catholicism, doesn't it? In the sense that Roman Catholicism also believes that baptism is working salvation. But Luther, even though he says similar things, he, he understands it in a different way. So you want to be careful not to equate Lutheranism and, and Catholicism. Luther means something different here. For Luther... The sacraments require faith in order to work. You'll notice that's going to be different than the Roman Catholic view. That's an essential distinction. In the Roman Catholic view, the sacraments do not require faith. They just require you to not actively push against them. And especially when you bring a child before a Roman Catholic priest to be baptized, the Roman Catholic view says that baptism works automatically. 
It just does what it does regardless of the recipient. It does what it does. It works automatically. For Luther, he says no, and he makes this very clear in his writings. Baptism, in order to work, in order for it to do anything and not just be a vain sign, is it has to have faith as a prerequisite. Luther makes that exceedingly clear. Faith is required. And see, that's where we're going to distinguish Luther's view from the Roman Catholic view. It's very, very important because this is also going to play into our discussion of baptism next week and in the weeks following. Because we also believe that faith is a prerequisite for baptism. So Luther's on the right track here. He's got good stuff to say. Now, let me read for you also um, section 3 from his catechism on baptism. Because here's what he, he asks another question. And this is also really important for us. He says, how can water do such great things? Right, he's asking the question. If you baptize someone, and, and his language here is baptism is giving salvation. He says, how does it do this? How is water something that God uses to bring salvation? And here's what he says. It is not the water that does such great things, but the word of God connected with the water and our faith, which relies on the word of God. For without the word of God, it is simply water and no baptism. But when connected with the word of God, it is a baptism that is a gracious water of life and a washing of regeneration in the Holy Spirit. So you notice what Luther's saying there. He's saying, the water itself, this is contra Roman Catholicism, the water itself doesn't do anything automatically. It doesn't just do its work like Rome teaches. But rather, baptism must be paired with the word of God, the preaching of the gospel, and baptism must be paired with our faith, which relies on the word of God. And so it's only when baptism is united with the scriptures and united with faith in the recipient that baptism is going to accomplish what it signifies. That is really important. Because the next question then, we can understand how that makes sense for adults, right? We require professing believers to get baptized. We're not just going to baptize pagans on the street. But then Luther brings up the question, what about infants? If baptism requires faith... And what does baptism do for infants? Do they have faith? Do they have faith as soon as they're born? Do they not have faith and are therefore not eligible for baptism? That's the conclusion of the Baptist view. Well, no, when it comes to infants, and this, this comes up in Luther's larger catechism, which I won't read for you here, but it's really good. I recommend it. Um, Luther says, here's what baptism does for infants. They do not have faith. When they come to the sacrament. They're not capable of it. But when infants partake of the sacrament. The sacrament doesn't pre-require faith. The sacrament gives faith. So notice that distinction there. For adults, faith is a prerequisite for baptism to work. With infants, baptism actually gives faith to the infant. And what the later Lutheran tradition does with this is it says, all right, every infant who comes and receives baptism is receiving the gift of faith. They're not capable of it, but mysteriously, God somehow gives them this gift. And they therefore become saved in the sacrament. 
So you see that. Right? You see what Luther's saying there. You see what the Lutheran tradition is saying there. Now, we're out of time for today. There was a lot more that I wanted to talk about. But you can see, Luther's trying to, to reconcile justification by faith alone with a very strong view of baptism. And one of the things that I think is a, a um, sort of inference or an implication of what Luther says here as we're finishing up is that you notice that for Luther, baptism becomes something fundamentally different for adults than it is for infants. Because for adults, faith is a prerequisite and acts as a kind of sign or a seal of the faith you already have, which is what we believe as the Reformed. But then for infants, it's something entirely different. For infants, they're receiving faith. And so baptism is regenerative for infants and not regenerative for adults. And this is something we'll talk about more next week as the Reformed try to look at what Luther says and deal with this issue and try to figure out, okay, is baptism different for infants than adults or is it the same? And how do we understand this and how do we deal with this? So you can see it's a complex issue and something really really is interesting. And uh, we'll talk more about uh, the Lutheran understanding next week as a preface to the Reformed understanding um, and some of the the slight distinctions that we make and some of the the issues that are there. But uh, um, I commend uh, that you read some of Luther's catechism, particularly the small one, and just uh, think through that and see what you can do with that because it's it's very helpful in a lot of ways. All right. We're going to stop there. Are there any quick questions that you guys have before we finish up today? Does all that make sense? Does the Lutheran view have a thing such as holy water? That might be helpful to understand where the Catholic Church wrestles with thinking this water is magical. They have mm-hmm. to, where do you get the concept of holy water? It's wrong. Is that in the Lutheran Church as well? Um, when you say holy water, what do you mean by that? Uh, the, the priest consecrating the water and thus making it, you know, have the ability to oh, I see. be something other than water. No, in the Lutheran Church, there's no holy water doctrine because Luther says specifically, it's not the water that's doing this, right? There's spiritual going on behind this. Right. You could, you know, the water doesn't have to be sanctified in any way. So it's not like Rome in that sense. Yeah, and that's why the Roman Catholics will usually mix oil with the water to sort of anoint it and make it holy. Lutherans don't do that. Just any old water out of the tap will work, right? Same as us, so... Anything else? All right, well, let's close in prayer. Oh God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the sacraments. And Lord, there's a lot of, a lot of history here. We, we are not having this conversation alone. Um, this is something that your people have been talking about for centuries and centuries and indeed even millennia. And Lord, we pray that you give us humility as we look at this issue. We also pray that you give us clarity of thought so that we can um, contemplate these things and try to understand what your word is teaching us. Lord, pray now that you would um, bless our time together and that you'd prepare us to worship you in spirit and in truth and to hear the preaching of your word from Robert this morning. We pray all of these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.